Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to praise You together tonight for the vastness of Your grace to us in Jesus Christ. We thank You that through Him all of the law's demands have been met, that His shed blood is ample justice reward for all our sins. We thank You that in His cross Your love and Your justice meet so perfectly. And we pray as we come to You tonight, conscious that our only access is through Him, that You will grant us that access. And as You stretch out the scepter of Your Word to us, we pray that we may take hold of it and bow our lives before You. We pray that where You make an end of teaching, we may make an end of learning, but that everything You teach, we will seek to learn. Everything You say, we will desire to hear. Every command You give, we will desire to obey. And every touch of our conscience that makes us cry out to You to cleanse us thoroughly from all our sin will be heard tonight in heaven. And so we pray, our Father, that You would give us a sense tonight that You are closing in upon us in grace, that You are speaking to us, not only corporately but individually. And we pray as Your Holy Spirit applies Your Word to our different lives and personalities and pasts and presents and futures, that we will find that Your Word is profitable for teaching and reproving, for transforming, for training us in righteousness, that we may be a people thoroughly equipped to serve You. Hear us, Lord, we pray. Send Your Spirit among us and upon us, for Jesus our Savior's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Now, as we continue these evenings in Paul's letter to the Romans, we are turning again this evening to Romans chapter 7 and the identical verses to the ones that we were studying together last Sunday evening, and we're going to read there from Romans chapter 7, and I think from verse 12 through to the end of the chapter in verse 25. And you'll find the passage is in the Pew Bible, page 943. And again, it would be helpful, I think, for you this evening to have that passage open before you. So let us hear God's Word, Romans chapter 7 and from verse 12. So, says Paul, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions." For I do not do what I want, 
but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. One of the most famous Scottish preachers of the second half of the 20th century was a man by the name of Alexander White. A number of his books are still in print, and some of you may actually have read perhaps his most famous series of books on Bible characters. Alexander White lived at a time when there were evangelical movements that emphasized what used to be called the higher life, that it was possible for the Christian believer by an act of faith to, as it were, move from the struggles of the Christian life into a level of sanctification, into a level of spirituality in which, by and large, all struggle was gone. Sometimes it was said particularly in connection with Romans chapter 7, that Romans chapter 7, particularly verses 14 through 25, were a description of a defeated Christian. There were too many eyes in Romans chapter 7 for this to be the normal Christian life. And it was often said there is no reference to the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 7, and there are many references to Romans chapter 8. Alexander White would have none of this. He had a standing order with his bookseller to send him every newly published commentary on Romans. And the first thing he did every time he got a new commentary on Romans was turn to see what the commentator said about Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. And if the commentator denied that Paul was describing the Christian here, he wrote a little note, put it in with the book, and said, this is not the commentary for me. And he sent it back to his bookseller. On one famous occasion, 
On one famous occasion, Alexander White leaned over his pulpit. He was a prodigiously great orator, and he said to his congregation, many of them very distinguished leaders in the city of Edinburgh, and to be a distinguished leader in the city of Edinburgh in the second half of the 19th century was to be a distinguished leader. And he said to them, so long as I am your minister, you will never get out of Romans 7 into Romans 8. And what he was really saying was, not that he intended to preach for the rest of his ministry on Romans chapter 7, but that the idea that what Paul was describing here was low-life Christianity did not comport either with the teaching of Scripture in general, nor with the flow of Paul's letter to the Romans. God willing, before we are dismissed this evening, I will turn to that thought. We were thinking last Lord's Day evening about this question, the question that troubles most commentators on, on which they write at great length. How do we identify the I who speaks in Romans seven fourteen to 25? And as I suggested last time, there's a whole variety of possible answers to that question. But I was saying then, and I want us to begin with this again this evening, that that was not a question for the Apostle Paul. He may be the only person who has ever read Romans who didn't have this problem, but it was not a problem for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, as he wrote Romans chapter 7, was not saying, I wonder who the author is speaking about. He is the one person we can be sure knew exactly about whom the author was speaking. That wasn't his problem, and it wasn't actually the main thing that he was writing about. And as we've worked our way, particularly from chapter 6, verse 14, and Paul's great statement that Christians are under grace and no longer under the law, the concern that Paul has had here is to explain to us what the purpose of the law is and how it brings conviction of sin and how it drives us to Jesus Christ. So, his great question here, particularly in the face of all the criticisms that there were of his teaching of the law, you remember how the end of the Acts of the Apostles, he was arrested and accused of preaching against the law. That in his affirmation that Christian believers are no longer under the law, He's wanting to explain to us exactly what that means and what the force and power of the law actually is. And he has explained to us, beginning of chapter 7, that we have died to the law. But then in verse 7, he raises the question, is the law sin? And answers, by no means, but I wouldn't have known what sin is apart from the law. And then in verse 13, he says, well, did the good law, 
Notice what he said in verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. And here is a critical statement. It was sin that produced death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And one of the things the apostle is doing as he moves now into the present tense from the past tense is to demonstrate to us that the law of God continues to do that. The law of God continues to expose our sinfulness. And there is a fairly clear reason why he does this. You remember his basic position in chapter 6 was to say the Christian is no longer under the dominion of sin because he has died to it. But that doesn't mean that the Christian is free from the presence of sin, and therefore he has to battle against it. And now you see he's saying in chapter 7, in Jesus Christ, through the body of Christ, as he puts it, we have died to the law. But, he says, that doesn't mean that we are perfect according to its standards. And the law, therefore, continues to function in my life, to expose my sin, to expose my need, and yes, also, as a Christian, to bring me to the place that he comes to in the last couple of verses of chapter 7, where again I'm brought to see my need, and I cry out to God, Oh, God, I need your deliverance. Thank you, God. Jesus Christ one day will finally deliver me. And so you see what he's doing here in chapter 5, in chapter 6, in chapter 7, chapter 8, it's not so much taking us chronologically through the progress of the Christian life as walking round the nature of the Christian life that has been engraced and united to Jesus Christ, but is still not in heaven. And he is really saying to us in these chapters, until we are in heaven, those of us who are in Christ are still in the world, and therefore we will find ourselves battling against the world and the flesh and the devil. And the sooner we understand that that is the nature of the Christian life, the more stable we will be. And this is a great thing, brothers and sisters, when we find ourselves confused. As Paul says here, I, I can hardly understand what I do. To be able to turn to the Scriptures and find a passage like this and understand there are times when the Christian life is just like that. Instead of being drawn away, as so many have been, by promises of a higher life in which we will be free from struggle in which the Christian life will become easy, when we will rise above all the struggles that the Christian ordinarily has against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Paul is saying it's struggle all the way home. It's a pilgrimage. It's a battle. 
It's a long walk of obedience in the same direction. And the sooner I am clear in my mind about what it really means to be a Christian, the clearer I will be in my commitment in dark days as well as bright days, in days when I particularly struggle with sin, in days when I stumble, the clearer I will be that this is, in fact, not abnormal for the Christian, but this is indeed the normal Christian life. And actually, thinking about those words of Alexander White about Romans 7 and Romans chapter 8, it's fascinating to notice that Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 8 fits in perfectly with this, doesn't it? Romans chapter 6, we've died to sin, but we're not yet free from the presence of sin. Chapter 7, we've died to the law, but we're not yet perfect according to the law. And then chapter 8, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, says Paul, I wonder if you've ever noticed this in Romans 8, 23, therefore we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for that great day when our bodies will finally be redeemed. And you see, it's the same pattern of thought. We've been brought into a glorious new order, but we're working out that glorious new order in a broken and fallen world. We are in Christ, but we're also in Columbia, and we're still living in these bodies that once were devoted to the world and the flesh and the devil. So there are glories in the Christian life but the glories of the Christian life have not yet swallowed up the struggles of the Christian life, as one day, by His majestic power, they surely will. Now, Paul works this out in a little detail in these verses, and I want us to glance at the way in which he does that this evening. He does it in four stages. First of all, from verse 14 through verse 17. Then verse 18 through verse 20. And you'll see that what he says in verse 17, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, is repeated again in verse 20 in a slightly different way. He says, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, you see, he's, he's working his way through a piece of very powerful reasoning here. And then the third stage is in verses 21 through 25a, when he cries out to God with thanksgiving that the Lord will one day finally deliver him from the body of death. And he comes to a kind of settled conclusion, doesn't he? In verse 25b, you can tell that he's coming to a conclusion by the words there. So then, he says, this is the situation. This is how it is. This is my conclusion. So then, this is the situation. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, what is he saying? Let's try and think of this in terms of the fact that he's still speaking about 
what the Christian believer looks like when the Christian believer looks at his or her life in the burning light of the law of God that is good and perfect for his life. Now, notice, this isn't everything that we need to say about the Christian life. This isn't Romans chapter 5. It sure ain't Romans chapter 6. And it's definitely not Romans chapter 8. We need all of these chapters. We need all of this teaching. We need all to surround us from all the different perspectives that God's Word gives to us. But granted that, Paul is saying, this is true of the Christian believer. And in those moments, the Christian believer feels the bright, hot heat of the law of God breaking under the surface and facade of my Christian life. Then he's saying, this is what is exposed. This is how things really are deep down in the Christian life. Well, there are four things. Number one, Paul is teaching us here in verses 14 through 17 that the law shows us its own deep spirituality. The law shows us its own deep spirituality. Now, he had prepared us for this in verse 12. He says, rather than demean the law, listen, he says, rather than demean the law, the law, he says, is holy. And the commandment, individual commandments are holy and righteous and good. Indeed, he says in verse 14, the law, notice the language he uses, we know that the law is spiritual. The law is spiritual. What does he mean by that? Well, he means the very thing that Jesus does with the law, doesn't he? In Matthew 5, 21 through 48, isn't it? When Jesus says, now, you've, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not covet, you'll not murder, and so on. And he's speaking about the relatively superficial ways in which the law of God has been interpreted and applied in his own day. But he says, I say to you, listen to this, he says, let me show you what the law of God really means and really touches. If you're angry with your brother, if you call him a fool, then he says, you have, as it were, committed spiritual murder. If you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, he says, you've already committed adultery. And you see what he's saying. The law gets under the surface of the action to the spirit of the man or the woman. And when it comes, and this is our experience, isn't it? When it comes in the power of the Spirit, it exposes motivations. It exposes our deceitfulness. It lays bare the dark places of our hearts and makes us call out for mercy. Because it doesn't deal merely with externals. 
The law, he says, is spiritual. It deals with motivations. But, he says, by contrast with that, verse 14, I am of the flesh sold under sin. The law is spiritual. The law is holy. The law is penetrating. But where is it penetrating? It's penetrating into the life of an individual, as Paul says, who is of the flesh. Now, never a good idea to look further on in a book when uh, you're not yet there, but turn over and look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. He says there to the Christians, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Now, follow his reasoning here. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. You don't belong to the world that is under the dominion of the flesh. You belong to the world that is under the dominion of the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. But what he's saying to us in verse of verse 14 to 16 of chapter 7 is that those who are no longer in the flesh but in the Spirit still have the flesh in them. They are still of the flesh. They still live in a world in which all that they have been in the past that was actually dominated by the flesh lingers on in their lives. They still find themselves with the, with the tentacles of their past life seeking to, seeking to draw them back. And he's saying when the law of God touches the life of a Christian who is not yet fully sanctified and in glory, then it's bound to expose the fact that even those who are not in the flesh and dominated by the flesh are still those who are of the flesh. And in that sense, in that sense, as he says, sold under sin. Now, notice his language there very carefully. He doesn't say we are selling ourselves under sin. That would be the mark of the ungodly to sell ourselves under sin. But he is saying we are in the position as Christians who have been brought to faith in Jesus Christ, we are in the position of being Christians who once were sold under sin. That's something that we are by nature sold under sin. And so long as that is true of us, until we are given a new and perfect body and live in a new and perfect world, it will always be said of us that while we are not dominated by the flesh, the flesh is still present in our lives. It's like a disease we had in childhood that leaves marks upon our face. 
I had a very striking experience yesterday. I was sitting waiting for a plane in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, and I saw a man. I was sitting opposite the, uh, is it the United Service Officers place that they have in airports, and I saw this man just out the corner of my eye. And he actually looked as though he was dressed in what looked like fatigues, the trousers, the, just the, the little bit of his trousers I could see. I thought, this is a, this is a military man. But what struck me was the way he was walking along the concourse. There was a kind of, I would have said it was almost, he was walking almost jauntily. There was a kind of bounce in his step. Well, I don't usually see military people in airports where they're usually going somewhere serious or coming from somewhere serious, kind of bouncing along the concourse. I looked down, I realized that what I thought were fatigued trousers were actually shorts. And underneath the shorts were two artificial legs. And the man was walking along. I think if he had been wearing long trousers, all I would have thought was, that man walks in an amazingly jauntily fashion but actually he was a man whose legs had been blown off. And now he was walking as a man whose legs had been blown off. And he always will. And if he's a Christian, always will until the glory of the resurrection. Now that's what Paul is saying here. This is what we are by nature, foul and full of sin I am. And it's not removed instantaneously when I become a Christian. And therefore, when the law of God penetrates into the deep recesses of my motives and my hearts, I discover, as the apostle says here, that the law exposes the truth about me. The law is spiritual. This isn't the whole truth about me, thank God, but it is certainly true of me. The law is spiritual, but as it comes with its searing power to expose my lingering sinful depravity, I find myself saying, but I am still of the flesh. Thank God, not in the flesh. I am still of the flesh, sold under sin. And yet he says, do you notice what he says here? This, I think, is one of the marks that identify Paul speaking here as a real Christian. He says, I agree with the law. You see, when I'm not a Christian and the law comes in, I fight the law. But Paul doesn't say that here. He says, although I don't understand my own actions, although I don't do what I want and I do the very thing I hate, you've done that, haven't you? You know, when people say to me, this Paul's not speaking here as a Christian, I want to say to them, come off it. Come off it. Have you never been in the position where God's law has searched your heart and you've cried out to Him and said, Oh God, I really wanted to do the good, but it was the very thing I hated that I did. Let's get real to use the vernacular. And Paul is getting very real with us because 
he says, verse 17, so I see the law exposes my sin. I agree with the law. So then, he says, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, if Paul were not a Christian believer, that would be the worst of all possible excuses. Would you let your seven-year-old get away with that? Wasn't me, Dad. It was sin in me that did it. This is not Paul playing the part of Craig Wilkes, and you may have missed the point he was making. His little boy is called George. It wasn't me. It was George that did it. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, I've come to know who I am in Christ. In Christ, I'm somebody who has died to sin, been raised to newness of life. I've died to the law. It can no longer condemn me, but it has exposed me. And I see now that all my heart is given over to Jesus Christ, but there is lingering indwelling sin that drags me down and needs to be battled against. So, he's saying really in verse 17, isn't he, the problem isn't in God's law. God's law isn't the culprit here. The culprit is the sin in my own heart. So, God's law shows its own deep spirituality. Second, in verses 18 to 20, God's law reveals sin's deep depravity, shows its own spirituality, and reveals sin's deep depravity. And you can see, as we noted earlier on from verse 20, that he's developing the thought a little further here. It's, it's not I, Lord, I am yours, and I want to be all yours, but sin continues to dwell within me. And he takes us a little further. Now, why should this be? Now, notice what he says, verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. Now, notice the qualification. That is, in my flesh. I wonder why he added that. Why did he say, I know that nothing good dwells in me, and then add the qualification, that is, in my flesh? Because he says elsewhere, doesn't he, that he knows that the Lord Jesus Christ dwells in him by the Holy Spirit. But when he looks at himself, when he sees himself exposed in himself by the law of God, he says, you know, I've come to understand that there is nothing good that dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Because he, here is how it works, he says, I have the desire to do what is right. That's who I am in Christ, but I don't have the ability to carry it out in myself. I don't do the good I want. It's the evil I don't want that I keep on doing. Now he says, if I do what I don't want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And you can sense the contradiction that he feels here. I mean, almost to the point where you might ask the question, 
Is, 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 is Paul actually contradicting himself in these chapters? On the one hand, he's speaking about the glorious privileges of the gospel. On the other hand, he's talking about the horrors of his own heart. Is he contradicting himself? No, he's just putting on display in this amazing passage the contradiction that resides in himself. Do you remember what I said last Lord's Day evening? If it's true that sin dwells in me, and it's also true that the Lord Jesus Christ dwells in me, and if both those things are not true of you, either A, you're not a Christian, or B, you're visiting this church this evening directly from heaven, and we welcome you. <laughs> but we suspect that you are an angel sent to test us. If you're a Christian, these two things are true. Sin dwells in you, and Christ dwells in you. And so, of course, when the law of God exposes the sin that still resides in your heart, what the older writers used to call indwelling sin, of course you feel this tension almost to the point of it seeming like a contradiction in yourself. And in a sense, there is something almost contradictory about this. How can the Lord of glory be pleased to dwell in a heart that's still got sin in it? in a life that still fails. It's amazing. Oh, yes, it's also glorious beyond description that He should be willing to do that. He who came from heaven's glory to dwell in our frail flesh in the midst of our sin, that He should come again, as it were, in the person of His Holy Spirit and dwell as the Holy Jesus in the hearts of those who are still sinners. Of course, there are going to be times when, in this sense, the law reveals sin's deep depravity, because it's still there despite the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ dwells in me. That's what made Augustine say, as Paul says here in different words when he says, you know, I'm not sure I can understand myself. As I've come to understand the gospel, says Augustine, I have become a puzzle to myself. How can this possibly be that I who love my Lord Jesus Christ, in whom the Lord Jesus Christ dwells, that I still fail Him and stumble and sin? And there are times when the good that I want to do seems to be transformed into the evil I don't want to do. So that in this sense, becoming a Christian believer, at least at times, can increase the sense of tension an individual feels rather than decrease it. Now, that's not the only thing to say about the Christian life. Not at all the only thing to say about the Christian life. But it's part and parcel of the Christian life. And the saints of God in every age have confessed that this is their experience too. So, the law shows 
its spirituality. It reveals sin's depravity. And thirdly, in verses 21 through 25a, the law exposes sin's ongoing activity. Paul says, I find a law within myself. Now, there are certain difficulties in interpreting exactly what he says here, but let's just, for the sake of working our way through this, let's, let's just say that the Apostle Paul, as he looks at his life, he sees that there seem to be almost contrary principles at work in him. There is his love for the law of God, and yet when the law of God shines into his heart, there seems to be this conflict that's set up. There is a law he finds within him that seems to be kind of exposed by the law of God that seems to war against the law of his mind. He delights in the law of God, he says in verse 22, in the inner man, who he really is in Jesus Christ. He delights in God's law. That's one of the great transformations for many of us, isn't it? that God's law was such a terrible burden. But now, the, the engine of the grace of God has made us begin to delight in God's law. We want to please God because He's become our heavenly Father. But what do we discover? We discover that there are pockets of resistance in our hearts, and as we go on, we begin to see that those pockets of resistance can be like knots that we've tried to untie, and they're wound very tight. And even as we delight in God's law and long to be more like Jesus, those, those sins can be very tight knots in our lives so that we have to confess, as Paul says here, that while we love the Lord's law in our minds and delight in the law in our inner being, we see in our members another law waging war against the law of our mind and making us captive to the law of sin that dwells in our members. That's very military, isn't it? I think. That is, there is an attack on the enemy. What does the enemy do? Well, if the enemy doesn't just throw up its hands on the white flag and easily surrender, the enemy digs in and digs in and digs in and becomes more difficult to dislodge. You see, sin is a kind of terrorist in the soul difficult to dislodge. Why? Because when it's working in your life, it's working in territory with which it has been intimately familiar all your life long. And so, Paul is saying, as, as, as God's grace works in my life, I see this other war, waging war against the law of my mind, and and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Is he taking everything back here about the fact that we've died to the dominion of sin? Well, we of all people should understand that's not the case. When one of our military 
men or women is captured by the enemy? Do we turn our backs on them and say, they're no longer one of our citizens, we'll just leave them? Do they cease to be a member of the community, a citizen of the United States, because the enemy has captured them? No, not at all. They cannot lose their citizenship even although the enemy has captured them. That's the picture Paul is painting. And some of us know. Maybe some of us are even going through this just now. We really belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is, there is an indwelling expression of sin in our hearts that we simply cannot budge. I have a fairly close friend who wrote some time ago about something that he feels he has been battling with in his life privately for over a decade. Surely a mature Christian, it would just, just a decision of the moment. But you see, it's, uh, it's hunkered up and it's bunkered in. God's mighty power has exposed it to him more and more. And that's what Paul is speaking about here. No wonder he says, now again, let me say, this sure isn't the only thing Paul says in Romans, is it? This is not the whole of the Christian life, but it is part of the Christian life. That when we are convicted of sin, when we see how deeply it's woven into our lives, and as we go on and we begin to realize there are layers of sin, it goes deep down, it's woven right through, it's hiding and lurking in every nook and cranny of our hearts, as it were, there will be times when we cry out, oh, wretched man, oh, wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, that's not very far from what he says in chapter 8, verse 23, when he says, those who have the Spirit of God in their hearts grown inwardly as they wait eagerly for the adoption, the redemption of their bodies. He's saying, who will deliver me from this body that is disease-marked? And all I seek to do by spiritual surgery and by the pharmaceuticals of the gospel, I discover that sin has lodged itself so deeply and permanently in my life, and I cry out to God, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, thank God through Jesus Christ. But he doesn't mean that this will happen the moment he cries out, thank God, through Jesus Christ. He knows it will only happen when God, through Jesus Christ, finally gives him a new body in the place of the body of death. And until that day, it's battle and struggle and fight all the way home. And so he says… And this is the fourth thing 
the way in which this experience of the law of God enables him to face the reality of the Christian life. And it's a wonderful thing, really. This this sense of the law exposing his sin, even while he is united to Jesus Christ, it brings him to this place of stability right at the end of chapter 7. So, I myself, with my mind, with my disposition, with my heart, with my understanding, I say to God's law, yes, 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 yes. But all the way home, I will be battling against the allurements of the flesh in which I serve the law of sin. Now, let me sum up what I think is so helpful for us to understand. How then does the Apostle Paul think about what it means to be a Christian? In the light of chapter 6, in the light of chapter 7, in the light of chapter 8, how should I think about myself as a Christian? That's a very important thing, isn't it? How you think about yourself usually powerfully impacts the way you live. And here is the summary of these two chapters, 6 and 7. Let me put it negatively, first of all. The Christian is not two men. The Christian is not two men fighting against each other. Secondly, the Christian does not have two natures. Christians have one nature, a human nature. We don't have any other nature than a human nature. So we are not two men, and we are not two natures. What then are we? I am in Jesus Christ one new man with a renewed human nature that is as yet imperfectly renewed. And until that new human nature is perfectly renewed in the resurrection, it is battle all the way home. I am not in the flesh. I am in the Spirit. But so long as the flesh remains in me, the law will reveal my sinfulness. And interestingly, because I'm a Christian, and especially if I'm a growing Christian, I will become more and more and more and not less and less and less sensitive to that sin. The saints have said this from time immemorial. The closer you get to the light, the more the dark spots will be exposed. So, back to where I started with Alexander White leaning over the pulpit and saying to his congregation of the very best of Edinburgh, you'll not get out of Romans 7 
into Romans 8 so long as I'm your minister. But I think I can improve on that. Modestly, I say that. I think I can improve on that. And I want to say this to you. You'll not get out of Romans 5. You'll not get out of Romans 6. You'll not get out of Romans 7. And you'll not get out of Romans 8 so long as I'm your minister. But if you've got Romans 5 and Romans 6 and Romans 7 and Romans 8, you'll realize this is a real part of the story. But it's not the whole of the story. The whole of the story is that all of this is experienced only because of the glorious new work of grace that God has done in uniting me to His Son and bringing me into the new creation. All of it is true. And when we understand that all of it is true, we could end every single one of these four chapters by saying, thank God Jesus Christ can. Well, we've been through the ringer in Romans chapter 7, and that's why we need to be able to say at the end, Jesus Christ can deliver me. And with my faith fixed on that final deliverance, I will have the patience to live in this world in the joy of Jesus Christ. May it be true. Heavenly Father, teach us, we pray by Your Word, more and more of what it means for us to be Yours, and especially what it means for us to be united to Jesus Christ and made most gloriously new. Teach us, we pray, by Your Holy Spirit, especially in times of battle and struggle, that we fight not for victory, but from victory, that we fight in Jesus Christ as well as for Jesus Christ. And as Your holy law exposes our ongoing sinfulness, we pray that as we bring that sinfulness to Christ to be of sin the double cure, cleansing us from its guilt and power, we pray that more and more, even in the struggle, we may see the victorious work of Your Holy Spirit, making us more like Jesus. This is our prayer, and we cry to You for help, that it may be wonderfully fulfilled among us as we encourage one another in the days ahead. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.